Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And so today we have on a very, very special guest who I've been excited to meet for quite some time now. We have Andy Norman on. Andy Norman is an award-winning author and public philosopher. He's done research on the evolutionary origins of human reasoning and the norms that make dialogue fruitful. He writes for national magazines like Free Inquiry, Skeptic, and The Humanist, and works to clarify the foundations of responsible thinking about what matters. He likes to speak on topics related to science and human values. Welcome, Andy. All right. Well, thank you, Leon. It's nice to be here. Yeah. And I mean, so, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of your work and your book before the show. And I'm super excited to have this episode because a lot of what we talk about on the show is related to cognitions, people's thinking, the biases in people's thinking. And so what I love about your work is that you take it even deeper than that. So it's not just biases, which I really appreciate. So because a lot of us get stuck in the kind of realm of logical fallacies and cognitive biases, and we think, well, that's that's all there is to it, right? It's like, uh, you know, human nature is just kind of of like murky and we kind of do our best to i guess counteract it right mm -hmm. so what i love about your work is you're pretty much saying is that this is a systemic issue and that it goes even deeper than that and it proliferates even further so mm -hmm. before we begin i want to first read a passage from andy's book and then i want to start off with a question so and uh okay so this is related to a parable called the ship owner parable and so andy writes it seems we're not entitled to believe whatever we please the notion that we have a blanket right to believe that uh, i'm sorry the notion that we have a blanket right to believe what we like turns out to be a myth in fact the parable shows that even judgments can be morally impermissible the ship owner had no right to believe, quote unquote, my ship is seaworthy, nor was he entitled to the corresponding value judgment, quote unquote, it's okay to load the ship with emigrants and send it upon the deep. Both beliefs were wrong, they were untrue, they were unjustified, and they were immoral. So Andy, can you tell us a little bit about the ship owner parable and why it's important? Oh, I think it's very wise of you to have me start with a story. Stories are a good way to yeah. get people's uh, um, mental gears turning, so yeah. So the shipowner parable goes back to a, uh, an essay written by uh, a man named W.K. Clifford back in the late 19th century. Um, and in this essay, he asks his readers to imagine a shipowner who's made a good living um, ferrying people back and forth across the Atlantic. Um, and eventually, uh, some structural issues with his boat, which has begun to show signs of wear and tear, have, are brought to his attention by a boatwright in his employ. And he, the boatwright says, basically, you need to put a lot of money into fixing up your boat because it's getting increasingly unsafe. But these doubts, these um, these considerations, kind of he he doesn't the ship owner doesn't like thinking about them. They, they prey on his mind, they remind him that he has, that he ought to invest heavily in the boat and he doesn't want to do, have to do that. So instead he suppresses his doubts and signs up a slate of passengers and sends it once more across the Atlantic, but the boat sinks and all aboard perish. And so the Clifford who wrote this parable invites us as his readers to uh, ask ourselves, what did the ship owner do wrong? And most people say, well, of course, he exposed his passengers to unacceptable risk, and that's morally problematic. And But if you then ask, uh, probe even further, what is it that led to this ethical failing? Turns out there's a, his, he failed to believe responsibly. He formed a set of beliefs about his ship 
that were not ethical. So to form beliefs in the absence of evidence or in defiance of the evidence, as the ship owner did, was the root cause of his uh, causing many deaths. Uh, and this example shows us that if we don't believe responsibly, that we can expose others to risk and, and, and sometimes great harm. And, and it underscores the fact that we don't just have cognitive rights, we also have cognitive responsibilities. And those who don't take the time to update their belief systems and refine them um, are actually doing the rest of humanity a disservice because they're not taking their cognitive responsibilities, their responsibilities with regard to belief formation and belief modification seriously. So I, I think this story helps to remind us at a critical moment in our civilization's history that all this talk about our rights with regard to what we can believe and say need to be balanced by our awareness of the responsibilities that come with being uh, a believer and somebody with a voice. And now that we have an internet to amplify our voices and powerful ways, it becomes more important than ever that we understand and apply our uh, shared standards of responsible believing. Right, well, and so what would you say to somebody who says, well, we can't actually control what we believe, right? We sort of believe, right? You know, you kind of, you have some information, you take the data in, you either accept it or you don't. Uh, what is it, I guess, what would it mean for somebody to actually think of cognitions and believing in terms of effort and, and willfulness and sort of volition and the idea that, well, no, you actually do have some choice there? Um, yeah, so there's a, a really interesting controversy in the psychology of belief about whether belief is even voluntary. Um, and philosophers have also uh, wrestled with this question. So going back thousands of years, philosophers have said, hey, it's really important that we believe responsibly. But then some people like uh, the Harvard psychologist, William James, basically come along and say, you know, belief really isn't voluntary. So don't tell us you shouldn't find fault with someone for the beliefs they end up holding because it's, it's not up to them. Well, there's something to this because you can't just arbitrarily believe anything on the spur of the moment. So you can do a little thought experiment. Try to believe that you're a, I don't know, a 10-foot banana. Mm -hmm. Sorry, can't do it. You, will, you will fail, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And that shows that we don't have complete power over our beliefs. But it doesn't follow that we can't uh, shape our beliefs indirectly and sometimes in very powerful ways. So when you make a habit of of relying on an idea, you start to effectively believe it. And those habits form because of voluntary choices. So if I make a habit of employing a certain premise in my arguments, say, against political opponents, um, I might originally start employing those premises just, just so that I can win arguments over people on the other on the other side of the political aisle. But if I repeat it to myself enough, I will actually start to believe it. Repetition can induce belief. And if you allow yourself to repeat irresponsible claims and ideas, uh, you will start to believe this. And I think um, there's no clearer example of this than our recent President Donald Trump's belief that he's about to be reinstated as president. I mean, he has simply repeated lies to himself so many times 
he's repeated irresponsible thoughts to himself so many times that he believes completely unhinged things. Would you say that that's how delusion works? It's sort of this repetition where you kind of force yourself or in some way you convince yourself to do it. Um, I, I would say, uh, so I'm no expert on delusions um, and I don't know that I can speak with confidence about delusions generally, but I certainly say that some instances of delusion seem to fit that profile well, yeah. Right. So, and it also kind of begs the question, I guess, a bit about how much in terms of, I mean, not to get into this, I guess, too much, but in terms of the mental health aspect for people who do struggle with delusional disorders, how much control and how much volition actually is there? If, you know, maybe there was some kind of like backstory of repetition, or if there was some case where a person was telling themselves something that maybe so obviously isn't true, and other people have been trying to, you know, maybe inform them or trying to kind of argue against that particular belief. But maybe that person kind of by repetition has convinced themselves, like, no, this must be true. So it's so interesting because beliefs are such a fascinating thing because on the one hand, it seems like they're outside of our control, but on the one, on the other hand, it seems like they're within our control. So, and it's like, and a great example of this is what's going on now with the anti-vaccine movement in this particular kind of juncture of history, where you kind of see this sort of willful ignorance ignorance and you see folks that right can you talk about that Andy? well and, and your term willful ignorance speaks to the fact that we do exercise some volitional con that we seem to exercise some volitional control over the things we believe right when you willfully embrace ignorance you know you're doing something voluntary and it's affecting what you believe so um i it wouldn't surprise me if there are some people who suffer from delusions who have no ability to to rein it in uh, but it's also, I think, uh, clearly the case that some people indulge in willful ignorance or willful believing for, say, political or social purposes, and, and then, then end up believing the very things they willfully believe. So you, you start off believing something because it makes you feel good, or you start off believing something because it helps you cope with trauma, or you start off believing something because it gives your political party political advantage. Um, and if you rely on that belief over time, it can harden in ways that leave you less capable of escaping it. Um, I mean, there's a reason why rabbit holes are hard to climb out of, right? It's because when we repeat uh, irresponsible or non-evidence-based thoughts to us often enough, you, you can fall, you, you, can, you, you can be trapped in a certain way that in a way that deprives you of cognitive freedoms right and so and then in terms of your model of cognitive immunology right um so it, it would the kind of connection there was so incredible and so fascinating because as you're reading through it you're like whoa like these things are virtually identical right it's sort of like uh that kind of old ancient egyptian adage as above so below i mean obviously nothing is exactly the same but i think the idea there is that a lot of let me see how I can explain this. A lot of what happens in life seems to sort of mimic these uh, seemingly dissimilar systems. Like systems seem to mimic seemingly dissimilar systems. So can you tell us a little bit about the mental immune system and how does that relate to the sort of actual physiological one? Yeah. So you're touching now on this sort of the central idea of my book. Um, so we, we, we all know that our bodies have immune systems and their job is to protect us against infectious microbes. What's not commonly known is that our minds also have immune systems that protect us against infectious ideas. Um, very few people talk openly about mental immune systems. And, and I, in the book, I'm actually saying it's time we 
started talking openly about this. So the existence of mental immune systems has been something of an open secret in psychology for about 60 years. A psychologist named William McGuire actually discovered back in the early 1960s that if you expose a mind to a weakened form of an argument, that that mind will develop resistance to even stronger versions of the same argument. Wow. He, and he, so he called his theory inoculation theory because he saw the connection between body inoculation and mind inoculation. And he uh, developed a set of research studies that basically showed that you can hack a mind's immune system and leave it um, closed to efforts to persuade. And, and we've, I think pop, the politics of recent years has actually demonstrated how powerful these mind hacking techniques can be because demagogic and propagandistic um, actors are busy hotwiring mental immune systems and causing those mental immune systems to break down in ways that don't serve the interests uh, of even their most ardent followers. Yeah. So, so one way you can, uh, uh, cause a mental immune system to fail. So, so let me back up. Um, the mind's immune system's job is to spot bad ideas and remove them or to prevent them from taking up residence in the mind. They can function more or less well. Um, they have to exist because going deep into our evolutionary past, the wrong idea can get you killed. So it, when I say, Hey, uh, uh, lean way out over that cliff edge, um, your mind will probably say, uh, no thanks. Mm -hmm. That's your mind's immune system spotting a bad idea and saying, no, -uh, ain't gonna, ain't gonna think it, ain't gonna do it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's an example of a mental immune system functioning properly to protect you. But mental immune systems can also misfire. Uh, give you an example from my own past. Uh, I grew up in a family that practically worshiped Martin Luther King. And when I heard that, that King was unfaithful to his wife, I did not want to believe it. Right. I deeply, deeply did not want this fact about Martin Luther King to sully my image of this guy who I held in such esteem. And I vividly remember how my mind responded to that information, um, which turns out to be true, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Luther King has many admirable qualities, but marital fidelity was not, was not one of them. Yeah. Um, when, my, when I first heard that he was unfaithful to his wife, I immediately concluded that the FBI was, was creating these rumors to smear King. Mm -hmm. Which sounds uh, reasonable. Which sounds reasonable if you know yep. anything about, yep. you know, um, J. Edgar Hoover's actual... Yep. Um, you know, he had Martin Luther King monitored and flagged as a potential communistic influence in the U.S. So yeah. it's and it wouldn't have been and it wouldn't have been above them to do something like that. Yeah. Quite possibly not. But it turns out that my mind was happy to help itself to that assumption about the origins of these rumors just to protect something that I, that was that I an idea or a belief that I cherished. Right. And so that was my mind's immune system actually mobilizing imaginary facts to fight off information it found threatening. Mm -hmm. And you can observe your own mind doing this. So the, the, ideally, the mind's immune system um, 
screens out falsehoods and lets in truths. Screens that uh, screens out harmful ideas and lets in beneficial ones. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but but there are all kinds of ways in which our mental immune systems are functioning at less than peak capacity. Every single one of us has a mind that harbors many untruths, and every single one of us harbors ideas that are less than optimal for shaping our own development and for help and for helping those around us which is to say we all have a lot of room to grow um, and improve the functioning of our mental immune systems. And then so how are ideology, well, first of all, what are ideologies and ideological systems? And um, I guess I, the other question would be, how is it that they sort of, I guess, toxify in some way, or how is it that they kind of uh, diminish the quality of the mental immune system or diminish it to the point where it's now sort of taking in more and more sort of uh, irrational, I guess, for lack of a better word, beliefs? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about ideologies as um, systems of ideas that don't serve humanity well. So some people are happy to use the word ideology in a way that's strictly neutral, where, where, where you're, you're not casting judgment on the set of ideas. Um, I think that's a missed opportunity because we actually need a term for nexes of belief or nexes of ideas that are objectively problematic. So the ideology of white supremacy or um, to me is an objectively problematic worldview that needs to be called out and not treated as just as valid as any other worldview um, because it, it really does sow division and really does sow hatred and resentment. Um, and honestly, there's zero evidence that the white race is superior to other races. Right, so it's both untrue and at the same time is destructive, right? So, and uh, right, and why are those two qualities important in assessing the sort of quality or the uh, the quality, the effectiveness, the sort of purpose of a belief? You, you're you're quite right. Um, so, I, I would say that that ideology fails both of the key tests for whether uh, a belief or a system of beliefs is is worth hanging on to. Mm -hmm. um, um, you can actually evaluate ideas on many different dimensions. Is it true? Is it false? Is it well-evidenced, poorly evidenced? Is it helpful? Is it harmful? Uh, is it inspiring? Is it depressing? Right there. Um, ideas have both what I call upstream evidence and downstream consequences. They affect the way we think and the way we feel and the way we behave and the way we treat others. But they also stand in... Uh, logical relationships to facts that can either evidence them or not. Right. And I argue that the sciences are really good at assessing upstream evidence. Yep. The religions of the world have historically focused on the downstream psychological or social benefits of believing certain things. But that each of these two traditions, science and religion, has a piece of the overall truth about, about belief. Mm -hmm. um, which is that beliefs are both logically implicated and causally implicated in our lives. Mm -hmm. And we need to pay attention to both if we want to achieve deep wisdom and, and what I call deep immunity to harmful ideas. 
how come you think the separation occurred? Like, why is there such, I guess, black and white thinking involved in this? Because what you're saying seems so obvious, right? Like, of course, beliefs matter in both respects. Like, it's, so yes, obviously, the validity of it is super important, like, duh. But then on top of that, its practical consequences are important as well. So I guess, why and how did the split happen? Was there some sort of fear or something that, you know, well, oh, how do we kind of prove or how do we go about assessing its practical effects? You know, uh, maybe it's something that's like, it's too broad, or, you know, it, it's based on sort of subjective data, right? So how did that split happen? Yeah, well, I can tell you the answer uh, insofar as it relates to the history of ideas. Mm -hmm. So I'm a philosopher by training, and I study the, the history of ideas. Um, and for a long, long time, philosophers have been interested in idea testing. And the assumption has long, among many philosophers and scientists, has have been that the relevant test of an idea is whether you can create a good proof for it right. or an argument from evidence Th those being very similar things mm -hmm. in other words uh professional idea testers philosophers and scientists have long bought into the idea that the upstream logical considerations are really where we need to focus our attention if we want to do idea testing properly and so there's a long tradition in philosophy that basically says, study the arguments for yeah, an idea. Shut up, shut up and calculate. Shut up and calculate. Give me the proof. Show yeah. me the proof, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, and then about 150 years ago, uh, an, a school of thought arose in America. I'm talking about American pragmatism, where uh, three very influential American philosophers basically argued that the downstream effects of our beliefs also are really, really important. Um, so if a belief inspires you or it uh, helps you fend off despair, that gives it a kind of validity quite apart from whether it's true or false. So this is a view called pragmatism. And I actually argue that pragmatism is a really important contribution to the history of ideas because it's drawn our it's drawn philosophers' attention anyway to an overlooked aspect of idea assessment. Right. Now there are some pragmatists, William James, I think I mentioned him before, uh, being one, who wanted to basically substitute upstream evidence-based testing just basically set that aside and look primarily at downstream consequences. I, I argue that James was mistaken about that, but his mentor, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, understood that both matter and that ideally we should be filling our heads that are both evidentially, that are, that are true, evidentially well supported and useful. We should hold ourselves to the higher standard of both and rather than the weaker standard of either or. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's, it seems like it's the American way to sort of believe in yourself or believe in other people, believe in your country, right? It's like you kind of put yourself out there and when the idea is like, well, you can't actually take risks or you can't put yourself out there unless you actually first believe in yourself first, right? So I guess, right. so how do we, I guess, reconcile that, right? Reconcile that with evidential sort of or an experiential knowledge, right? Um, how do we, or I guess, how do we reconcile the idea that, well, on the one hand, we do need something to sort of propel us, but then on the other hand, well, sometimes kind of evidence goes against us and evidence tells us, well, maybe you shouldn't do that thing, right? Uh, maybe you shouldn't be a boxer, or maybe you shouldn't be a football player, or 
maybe you're not even smart enough to go to a particular, let's say, an Ivy League school or whatever, right? Uh, but you know, but the American way is that no, 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 that's awful. You should never tell a person that they can't fulfill their dreams. It's no, don't do that, right? So it's like, how do we reconcile the two? Because it does seem like a mean thing to do to tell a person, well, you know what? Look, I'm sorry. I mean, actually, you're not really that great in this thing that you really love. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you refer, I think, correctly to a, a long tradition in America of you know the power of positive thinking. Yes. Right. And 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 positive psychology is a new branch of psychology that's sh that's showing that you know positive thinking isn't just silly. That there there are we can have our habits of mind with regard to positivity or negativity can have profound impacts on our well being. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not into self-helpy, you know, believe you can be the next president of the United States and, you know, everything will work out fine and dandy. I think that's, that's a lot of hokum. Yeah. Um, but um, think of the, the, uh, so James, William James, I mentioned him earlier, and in some ways he's one of the, in some ways the villain of the story I tell. But but the man was profoundly intelligent, profoundly insightful, made some very important contributions to the psychology of religion. Right. And he has some wonderful examples too. So I have the ship owner example on the one side to prove that responsive our responsibilities with regard to belief formation are real right. and does and need consideration. But James tells a bunch of stories that show that our cognitive rights to believe things that 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 promote our psychological health also matter right. so so here's my one of my favorites of james's stories he says imagine the person who has zero evidence that a particular stranger will prove friendly but allows himself to believe that the person is friendly and therefore approaches this stranger in a kind of a trusting um open way which then facilitates the formation of the friendship right so that positive attitude actually can help to bring about the very friendliness that it starts off believing mm -hmm. right that's a powerful story for me because something very similar changed my life um in high school i was kind of lonely and depressed and a friend took me aside and said hey andy try smiling more. Yeah. And I was like, why? I don't feel smart. I don't, I don't feel happy. Why should I advertise the happiness I don't feel? Yeah. It feels like false advertising, right? But she said, Andy, quit being an idiot. Mm -hmm. Smile anyway. And so, you know, I gave it a try. And I just started smiling at random strangers for like no reason at all. Mm -hmm. I had zero evidence or reason to smile at these strangers. And they started returning my smiles. And the world started feeling like a friendlier place. Yep. And I kind of date my, the coming out of my own sort of cocoon to the weeks and months after I learned this wonderful piece of advice, smile anyway. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that advice, smile anyway, is a lot like have faith, mm -hmm. hang in there, you know, stay po keep a positive attitude. It, 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 um, it's similar to this, uh, have a positive attitude and, and, the, and the world is your oyster kind of uh, self-help stuff that is so pervasive in American history. And I have qualms about a lot of that literature, yeah. but I also am happy to recommend Smiling Anyone, mm -hmm. Smiling Anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly credit James in the book with 
having an important piece of the truth when he says, you can't just prohibit attitudes that promote mental health because they don't meet your evidential standards. Right. So I try to show that there's a more encompassing truth that allows for both Cliffordian evidential accountability mm-hmm. and Jamesian um, positive psychology. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite aspects of the book, that you were able to reconcile the two. So uh, often, I guess, the response that you would likely get when you tell them, when you tell a person, well, you know, the practical uh, consequences matter, or rather, I'm sorry, if you tell them that the evidence matters, they will say, well, you know, without faith, how would I live, right? How would I find meaning? Where would I gain a sense of morality from? Um, how would I even feel that, like, I can trust other people, right? If, like, like, let's say maybe if we're not all children of a divine entity, by right? oh, my God, like, we're sort of in a jungle, right? How do I, how do I kind of survive? And so, but you found a great way around that sort of, I know rather, I would even say you found a way to sort of fuse the two ideas together. The idea that you can have both evidential beliefs and you can reconcile them with practical ones that kind of allow you to feel hopeful and allow you to feel that, well, other people aren't so terrible and that other people have your best interests at heart, just like you have theirs, you know, or hopefully could have theirs. And so how do you do that? How do you reconcile the two? Yeah, I, I guess I'm saying we can have our cake and eat it too. Yeah. I, I'm saying to the world's religious folks, I hear you. I understand that you have real psychological and social and emotional and spiritual needs that are served by your beliefs. I understand that those needs are real and legitimate. Um, and I say we have to listen to the Cliffords of the world who say that we can't just let the concept of faith become a blanket license for irresponsible believing. So um, the idea that everyone is entitled to their articles of faith clearly does not withstand scrutiny because it would allow the ship owner to believe, believe on faith that his ship is seaworthy and that wouldn't work out well for humanity. Right? Um, so we need to acknowledge our, our cognitive responsibilities as illuminated by the ship, ship owner parable and we need to illuminate our, to recognize and understand, appreciate our cognitive rights as illuminated by the um, smile anyway story, say, or, or as illuminated by the, you know, have faith in a stranger's friendliness story. Um, so I try to basically build a bridge that will allow us to reconcile the competing demands of science and religion, reason and faith, um, reality-based, you know, living in the real world and also understanding that we're beings that crave spiritual transcendence, for lack of a better word. Um, right, so like feeling, I, feeling like we're part of the bigger picture. Good. And there's more to, we, we, we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And, and that's a profoundly admirable uh, sense and we need to honor it and find ways to meet that need but i but ideally we want to do that without excusing intellectually dishonest um believing I guess what would you say to a person who says, well, you know, we have to have faith sometimes, right? So the idea is we can't know everything. So why isn't it okay for us to believe in things that may not be true sometimes, right? Why, especially when we're talking about fundamentals of the universe, uh, let's say things that perhaps we'll never know anything about. Why isn't it okay to say, well, you know, I believe in this thing because I believe in it and you know what, there's no proof for or against it. Right. So you're, you're channeling actually a very interesting, fascinating argument that I devoted, I don't know, 10 years to studying. Um, 
So the idea is, the argument can be put this way. Um, each and every one of us has to take certain things on faith. Otherwise, our reasoning can't get up, can't get started. Like, mm -hmm. what, what could possibly serve as an unargued premise, if not an, arg uh, an article of faith? So everybody takes things for granted. So everybody has art everybody relies on articles of faith. That's the way this argument goes. Now, I'm not endorsing that argument. I'm just present. I'm laying it out there. Mm -hmm. The problem with that argument is that it excuses. It allows anybody to use that argument to excuse any starting points they want, including my race is superior to your race, or or what if I decide to take on faith that 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 you are vermin. I'm sorry, right? You should not be okay with that. And, and I'm not okay with other people thinking I'm vermin. And, and so I don't think anybody should, should treat any, should take it on faith that anybody is vermin. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we can't just say everybody's entitled to their articles of faith and let that be a blanket excuse for believing anything because it opens up a can of worms and makes it impossible to create shared well-functioning shared standards of accountable talk and accountable believing. Right, that makes so much sense. And right. what's so interesting too is as speaking about accountability and the sort of shared understanding that we come to, what I love so much about your system is it's not individual, or at least it's not solely individual. So just like if we were to get a vaccine, like let's say we were to get the COVID vaccine and the idea is like, well, you know, you're going to affect or at least not affect the people in your community, which is a great thing. And then hopefully they kind of pay it forward and they sort of do the same thing and on and on. And then we build up this kind of herd immunity, not in the way, obviously it's sort of conceived of by conservatives, fortunately. So we build up this herd immunity, right? Just like we would do with the communal immunal system uh where right. sort of right right and can you tell us about that so why why is it that uh the sort of the immune functioning of one specific person tends to depend on the sort of global or i guess more widespread cultural functioning of the immune system beautiful so uh let's start with the biological case right so my own susceptibility to covid depends crucially on the habits of the people i interact directly with mm -hmm. So if the people I'm, so go back to before the vaccine, right? And if I was, if I'm hanging out without a mask with other people who go off and interact with others, also maskless, my susceptibility goes through the roof, not just because of my own behaviors, but because of the behaviors of the people I'm interacting with. Right. So one of those morals there is that our biological susceptibility is a social thing, right? The, the behaviors of others affect my well-being, and my behaviors affect the well-being of others. Right. The exact same relationships hold for our mental susceptibility to bad ideas. If I surround myself with a bunch of conspiracy theorists, it's extremely likely that I will start um, succumbing to those same conspiracy theories. Yep. Um, if I surround myself with people who have high evidential standards, like a lot of scientists I know, um, I'm likely to have a much easier time shedding conspiracy theories. Right. So, so I like to say that, um, that mental immunity is a team sport. Mm -hmm. we, we need to help each other spot and remove bad ideas because no one of us can spot enough of the bad ideas to really become wise but if i can 
help you spot your bad ideas and you can help me spot mine, we can both become wiser together. Yeah. Um, we have to dialogue together. We have to learn from each other. Uh, and we have to, and each and every one of us has to take responsibility to, to try to weed our mental gardens of the bad stuff. Because in the same ways that, uh, that weeds in your mental garden, the, the ways that if you uh, garden a plot in a larger community garden mm -hmm. and you let the weeds run rampant in your, gar in your plot, they'll germinate and spread weeds, uh, seeds and weeds to other neighboring plots. That's, that's not being a good neighbor. Mm -hmm. But if you do the exact same thing in the idea space, if you let kooky, poorly supported conspiracy theories or evidence um, resistant beliefs flourish in, uh, in your mind, you can then infect other minds with equally irresponsible ideas. So each and every one of us has a responsibility to um, weed our minds of bad ideas and replace them as much as possible with better ones. Yeah, and I think that often we don't consider how important the environment is for us. So for me personally, and I guess this is maybe, I would think of it as unfortunate, but maybe it's not such a bad thing. I don't know, comparing, to, or I guess looking at the bigger picture where I am now, but I was actually a conspiracy theorist for a long time. And the reason why I was is because I was surrounded by folks who were conspiracy theorists. And so the person who I considered, well, he was like a family friend and I considered him to be a mentor. He kind of like, he built me up and he made me feel really good about myself because he's like, oh, you know, you understand this so quickly and so deeply and you know, other people don't get it. They don't see like the bigger picture of like this conspiracy and the cabal and what's going on. And so people, I don't think really take that too seriously, how important it is that another person, that a person who you value and whom you sort of, even from my kind of perspective, idealize, uh, how important that is to another person's sort of understanding of the world. And it's like, if you surround you, and as for me, I guess it wasn't necessarily my fault because I was a kid, but if you're surrounded or you choose in some way to surround yourself with people who believe in things that are pretty toxic, it's super hard to get yourself out, right? And I mean, yeah. and I know you've seen people uh, who like, uh, I know this is is pretty rare with like people who leave cults and leave like these different types of like religious organizations to me it's always baffling because i'm like how the hell did this person do it like and what like if you put this person in an environment who has like either no sort of objective uh kind of sense of the outside world or at the very least if they do they find a way to rationalize it away which i guess will make it a little easier for them to, i'm sorry if they have a and if they kind of see what what's going on outside they probably have an easier i guess time or whatever to, to leave or it's an easier or likelier probability but what's yeah. so interesting to me is that those people actually leave how do you think they do that any idea uh, well uh i mean it sounds like you've been sucked into a conspiracy theory and managed to find your way out which is a tribute to your mental resilience that's and that's awesome i love to hear stories like that uh cults can be an especially uh I don't think you use the word cult to describe your phenomenon, but I remember seeing, hearing a wonderful article on, on an NPR based radio show about a kid who gets uh, basically sucked into a mini cult mm -hmm. by, a, by, a, by an older friend. Right. And the process, and his parents had to go through years of cult deprogramming to help this kid escape. Mm -hmm. um, I like to say that an ounce of, of uh, mind inoculation is worth a pound of cult deprogramming. Mm -hmm. um, 
So there are, there are people who are experts in cult deprogramming and they study this and, and they know how freaking hard it can be to save somebody who's gone down uh, into a cult or deeply, deeply into a rap conspiracy theory rabbit hole. My own expertise deals with prevention rather than cure because I think there's the same amount of effort can buy you 16 times as much uh, or uh, I think we can do a whole lot more to prevent the spread of bad ideas by strengthening mental immune systems before they get deeply infected right. and to try to I, I'm not saying don't try to save your your conspiracy minded uncle from his conspiracy theory yeah. but it's hard and I'm no expert in that particular aspect of it yeah, and what was super helpful for me was, so I, when we spoke, obviously, uh, via email, so I told you a little bit about my mentor. So my mentor was actually, in my, in, when I was in college, uh, my mentor was actually probably the sole reason, or at least the major reason why I kind of was able to move away from it. So Dr. Tim Stroop was a professor, a philosophy professor at John Jay College. And so for him, he and I used to kind of have these battles in class where I would be like, yeah, you know, Ron Paul is going to like win the election and the Federal Reserve is evil. And so what was so cool about Tim was he was... Well, first of all, he was open-minded, which is what you talk about in your book, and I really love that. So he would, he would hear me out. He'd be like, okay, let's, let's hear what you have to say. Like, what, what's, where's your evidence? Where, what are your sources, right? Why do you believe this instead of that? And then the other thing was he would actually, after, like, after a while, after the course ended, so he taught an ethics class. He taught ethics and law. And so after, after the law class ended, what he did was he said, look, if you'd like, he's like, I could send you books, right? Because he's like, I know you like to read. He's like, I'll send you books, right? But he's like, here's the thing though, because you have a tendency to only read the material that you like. He's like, I want to send you books on the opposite end, right? So he's like, I'm not telling you I'm right, right? All I'm saying is that if you want to be a good thinker, you have to know what the other side is arguing, right? He's like, you don't know that, right? He's like, let's be honest. He's like, you know what? He's like, you know your arguments, but you have no idea what, he's like, you have caricatures of the other arguments, right? So he's like, let me send you books and it was pretty much about, uh, uh, so I was a, a huge proponent of like small government. And I was like, yeah, don't, don't uh, pee on my rights. Don't treat on me. And he's like, well, here, let me send you this book. I, um, I forgot who the authors were, but it was called The Self-Made Myth. And it was essentially arguing for more government intervention because the idea there was that like nobody's an island of himself. And so you pretty much, you get help, right? Everybody helps everybody in some way. Mm -hmm. So he's like, look, I'll send you the book. And he's like, I'll tell you what. He's like, if you could show me why this book is wrong, he's like, I'll, I'll, I'll take up your belief he's like no worries right but he's like but you have to know what the other side is saying so i thought he was a perfect example of your work Go ahead. Yeah, well uh i i like your 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 mentor here already not i haven't met him but uh he uh you you mentioned two aspects of his approach to teaching that i admire greatly number one is he showed an openness to being persuaded by you right. up front so that and and Everything, every single one of us, I think, wants to see that from the other person before we let them persuade us. Right, right. So um, I, I argue that it's almost always a good idea to establish early in a conversation that you're willing to listen and learn from the other person. Right? Listen first, seek first to understand them and learn from them. And then maybe you can ask them to listen and learn from you. Yeah. Um, not everybody can, go, can listen first, but, but, but it's the attitude, right? That's important. Um, and of course, your, your uh, philosophy professor mentor was also correct that you can't look at the arguments on only one side of an issue and think you've understood it, let alone that you've proved it or, or that you have any right to believe it. Turns out uh, sound judgment is always a matter of weighing the pros and the cons. The arguments on both sides or 
more often many sides. <laughs> um, and uh, the conceit that, oh, I've studied the arguments for, um, and end of story, uh, QED, uh, right. you know, question, question, answer, next question. Mm -hmm. That's a profoundly irrational attitude. And your philosophy professor is to be congratulated for having uh, talked to you, helped you move beyond. Yeah, and what was so great about Tim was that you can genuinely tell that he really wanted to help his students. So there was this sort of, uh, I, I mean, I was going to say innate, but may, it felt innate to me. So it seemed like for him, there was an innate drive to really help people, to really help them understand, like, first of all, why they believe what they did, and then also to help them kind of get to, get a little bit closer to a healthier beliefs, right? Even though, obviously, he had his own sort of systems of thinking. Um, I would say they're definitely more scientific, and I, I agree with them, obviously. So I would say that they're more based on science, but like all of us, right, he had his own beliefs systems he was willing to challenge them but they were his belief systems right so what i loved so much about him was at the end of this class because it was a law class he actually had us debate on really important like uh, ethical issues and what he would do is he would actually have you debate for the other side so if you were pro-abortion yeah you were debating anti and if you were anti-abortion you were dating pro and so the idea was that and the other thing was he didn't actually want to tell you i mean we all kind of figured out where he where his like political and social leanings were but he actually never told you he so he's like you're never going to hear about my beliefs because he's like i don't want to bias your beliefs so and oh yeah, okay, I don't want to like rant on about this, but that yeah. Well, let me pick let me pick up on that because um, this is also something that I came to in the in the course of learning how to teach. Um, you can't browbeat anybody into learning something. What you can do is is invite them into a conversation, invite them to to use their own judgment to come to their own conclusions, and to test their ideas. Uh, with considerations from all sides. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, um, it's not a professor's job to, to tell you what to believe. Yeah. A, a good teacher will help you learn how to, to think and leave it to you, your judgment, what to believe. Now, if you, once you understand, if a student gets that message loud and clear from a teacher, a lot of times they'll become someone cap who's capable of thinking for themselves. But if you end up with a doctrinaire teacher who's trying to shove their ideology down your throat, most of us react. We dig in our heels and say, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. And, and we, um, often we go to the other extreme and we feel attacked or something, right? And to the, if that's, I know people who say that there's a lot of that going on in universities these days. Mm -hmm. My guess is that there is some, but not a lot. Almost all of the teachers that I know in higher education bring more or less the same attitude your professor does, did. Um, and, and, and any teacher worth his or her salt understands that you need to leave the student to reach their own conclusions in the end. Right. And you, you, you enable them, you empower them, um, and then you let them uh, examine the evidence and the considerations on all sides and, and, and leave them free to reach their own conclusions. Right. And by the way, that was actually my favorite part of your book about your teaching experience and how you progressed in it. Can you share that story with us, how you kind of figured out where your, uh, where your pitfalls were initially? Sure. Yeah. What, so when I, after studying philosophy for about 10 years, I finally got a professorship and started teaching. And I figured 
well, I've learned all this stuff. And so I'm an expert. So I'm going to walk into the classroom and I'll get up in front and I'll dispense wisdom and everybody will see how brilliant I am and they'll love my teaching. And it just totally didn't work out that way, right? I, I'd go in there and I'd lecture and the students were just like, they tuned, they started tuning me out. They, they were unengaged. They were, they were not as engaged as I wanted them to be. So I had to completely rethink my approach to teaching. And because I, so actually I, I kind of tricked them into educating me. I basically said, all right, guys, here's a deep philosophical issue. What do you think? <laughs> and then I let them argue it. And I, I basically kind of played referee and said, all right, boy, that's an interesting point. Uh, I, I, I might put it a little differently, but great point. What do you guys think? And, okay. and I uh, allowed people with, from Christian and Jewish and Confucian and pragmatist and instrumentalist and from a thousand different philosophical perspectives. I, I listened to them all and tried to learn from them all. And um, basically just tried to create a, a good learning environment where we could all learn from each other. And the students responded with so much enthusiasm. I'm gratified to this day because I kind of feel like I stumbled into a better approach to teaching. And they really came alive when I climbed off my expert pedestal and just said, Hey, let's let's explore this issue together. Mm -hmm. Let's let's help each other understand and let's build shared understanding. And I think when a when the members of a learning community, either in a classroom or outside of a classroom, say let's let's build shared understanding together, and um, and help all of us understand this better than we did before. Mm -hmm. If you bring that attitude to a conversation, the conversation can just be lights out, interesting and fascinating and illuminating and rewarding. And if you bring the wrong attitude to the exact same conversation, you can subvert it for everyone. Absolutely. And so before we wrap up, I think this is probably going to be the most important question, right? How do we do it? How do we inoculate minds and how do we figure out what's reasonable? Yeah, that's the big, that's the mm -hmm. big one, right? Yep. Um, so if you analyze these questions about how, how we should think and how we should believe and how we should reason through the lens I develop, I call it the cognitive immunology lens, which is to say, bring the concepts of immunity and immunology into the cognitive space and study how minds work and how minds work to spot bad ideas and remove them and spot good ideas and let them in and so on. So if you bring that lens to these terribly important philosophical questions that have been around for thousands of years, you start to see all kinds of fascinating ways in which we can improve the way we think and reason together. So here are a couple of them. Um, I'll call these sort of the lessons of cognitive immunology. Number one, listen to your doubts. Your doubts are the antibodies of the mind. And if you learn to listen to them, they'll almost always draw your attention to relevant considerations, sometimes considerations that reveal ideas to be more problematic than you think. So listen to your doubts. Number two, um, Always reason to find out, never reason to win. If you find yourself reasoning to defeat a perceived enemy, uh, retrench, change your attitude, because reasons function well to help you spot bad ideas and remove them if you're trying to develop and deepen your understanding, and if you're trying to win a culture war, 
they start, they'll start to mislead you. Your, in fact, your mind's immune system will start to go haywire if you start reasoning to win. Um, so don't think of reasons as weapons. Think of them as ways to draw attention to relevant considerations. Like, you know how some people use laser pointers to point to things on a slide? Well, you think of a reason as a way to draw your audience's attention to something that you think is relevant. Um, finally, don't treat your beliefs as uh, you know partners for life or heirloom furniture. Treat them as house guests that might just wear out their welcome. Mm -hmm. Your beliefs might serve you well for a while, but don't get too attached to them. Be willing to let go and move on once you start to see the limits they're, they're placing on you and your capacity to grow. Right. I love that. Thanks. I'll, I'll just offer one more. Yep. Avoid willful belief. Mm -hmm. So if you believe things because you want them to be true rather than because you know them to be true based on evidence, you're setting yourself up for cognitive immune failure. You confuse your mind's immune system if you believe things because you want them to be true rather than because you know them to be true. Try to believe purely based on what you know and what you have, have evidence or reason to think is true. It's okay to have willful hope or what I call resolute hopefulness, mm -hmm. but it's not okay to willfully believe something just because you think it will benefit you. That's so interesting. And what is resolute hopefulness, right? Because I mean, you can easily, I guess, misconstrue it as well. I mean, see, this is James, right? We're just believing because we want to believe. Isn't that the same thing? Um, I think hope and belief are different things. I think we should reserve belief for things we have good reason for. And, um, but just as my, as just a smile anyway, represents kind of a resolute, uh, po resolutely positive attitude, I think it's okay to keep, be resolutely optimistic because that doesn't in, entangle us in intellectual dishonesty in the way that willful belief does. And what would you tell somebody who's asking how to do that, how to do that, right? Like, how does one become sort of optimistic, especially, I mean, I'm sure obviously you're a human in the world, you see what's kind of going on out there, right? So I guess if a person were to say, well, you know what, Andy, uh, the only way for me to maintain optimism is if I know it's bullshit, right? If I tell myself, okay, you're going to have to force yourself to do it because it's so terrible out there. What would you tell that person? Yeah. Um, so, so there's a wonderful book out just in the last year or two called Humankind, A Hopeful History. Uh, and its author, which is a, a Dutch journalist named Rutger Bregman, argues that we've been seduced by an unduly dark picture of human nature. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to buy into the idea that human beings are fundamentally selfish and, and manipulative. And if you buy into that view, even partially, it will start to color the way you view the world, the way you view life, and the way you treat other people. But it turns out there's some very good evidence from the evolutionary sciences, from psychology and elsewhere, and other branches of, of the sciences, that suggests that human beings are far more trusting and kind and generous than we tend to think. And if you replace that cynical view of human nature with a more optimistic or more, sorry, replace the more cynical with a more realistic picture of human nature, often the optimism will flow directly out of the realism. 
Yeah, and I love that because, I mean, technically all of us, well, let's say not all maybe, but most of us do strive to be better. So I guess even if we're, the argument is, well, you know, human nature is, this, I'm sure you've seen this plenty of times with the cognitive bias as well. Human nature is irrational. Uh, human nature is selfish. And I mean, obviously you just said it, right? So, but the idea is, but we're also trying our best not to be those things. So that's not the whole picture. It's not, well, here's humanity. We're always going to be like this because we've always been like this. No, self-help is a thing. Philosophy is a thing. Psychology is a thing. All of these are things because we genuinely want to be better people. We're constantly asking ourselves, how do we become better and productive and sort of more compassionate citizens of our societies, right? It's not, it's, a, it's, I guess, I mean, not to get too deep into this, but why do you think in terms of like evolutionary psychology, the buck seems to stop there where the idea is like, well, this is just human nature and that's, that's kind of all there is to this story. How come there is no more, or I, I, I don't want to generalize, I guess, but how come yeah. do you feel like there isn't enough optimism in that field? It, 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 do I think there's enough optimism in, in the evolutionary psychology? Yeah, I guess. Okay, let me reframe the question. Is there, right? Because I'm assuming that there isn't. Because from what I've read so far, it does seem to be a little bit bleak in the way, uh, in the way humans are sort of conceptualized. Yeah, I, well, yeah, some of the early research on, in evolutionary psychology emphasized the ways in which we, our evolved minds work to manipulate and, and, and net and uh, net and interact with people to our own benefit, right? right? And that can exacerbate a cynical view of human nature. Uh, but if you start to look more deeply at, at psych, human psychology and how it evolved, it turns out um, the, the absolute key to humanity's success. So, so psych, psychologists call us an ultra-social, species or biologists, I guess, call us an ultra-social species, which means humans are have an extraordinarily collaborative way of making a living in the world. Right. And the reason we became so, so highly collaborative is that we evolved mental modules that induce trust and cooperation and sympathy and, and things like that. Right. So there's a book out called Survival of the Friendliest by an extremely talented uh, biologist who basically says that we tend we originally assumed when darwin came out with his origin of species we originally assumed that it was survival of the fittest meaning survival of the most ruthless right but it turns out that um cooperative ways of making a living can evolve and turn people into more and more and more trusting and docile and sympathetic and cooperative creatures um, and in the same way that dogs are are evolved to cooperate with humans humans are evolved to cooperate with one another. And when you understand this about our evolutionary past, you're much less likely to take a cynical, dark view of human nature, much more likely to take an optimistic and hopeful view of human nature. And the best part about it all, best of all, is that swapping the more cynical, swapping out the more cynical and swapping in the more hopeful can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we trust the, the more we allow ourselves to hope and the more we trust one another, the more we can make it uh, an even more robust reality. Absolutely. And then, so my final question is going to be, what would happen? So what do you, I guess, think would happen if we did work kind of collectively or together to sharpen reasons fulcrum, right? What would happen to the world and what would be the sort of widespread practical effects in your understanding? Yeah. If I had to pick one idea, uh, at the heart of my book that might that I think has the potential to just completely change our our, our civilization, it would be this 
idea I, I call I label reasons fulcrum. And thank you for, for calling it out. So in the book I show that reasons can't work to change minds unless everybody involved in the reasoning is a allows themselves to be persuaded by better reasons. So if I want to, to dialogue or converse with you, and I expect you to change in response to my reasons, I need you to be persuadable. But of course, I can't expect you to be persuadable unless you're willing, unless I'm willing to be persuadable by your reasons. So at the very center, at the heart of all dialogue is this norm I call reasons fulcrum that says, we all agree to, to, to yield to the better reason, whatever that turns out to be. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that's not just the heart of dialogue, it's the heart of inquiry, it's the heart of joint problem solving, it's the heart of science, it's the heart of engineering. You can't do any of these things unless the norm that we're willing to yield to better reasons holds sway. In the last five years, we've watched Donald Trump trample that norm in ways that are, to me, terrifying. Because where that norm becomes damaged, thinking goes haywire. And I, can, I think I've essentially demonstrated that in my book. A root cause of our post-truth predicament is the disregard for reasons fulcrum. The number one thing we can do to stabilize our fraying civilization is to reestablish shared commitment to reasons fulcrum, begin to dialogue again, begin to learn from one another. And if we do that, our civilization can be transformed into something 10 times more beautiful. I, have com I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't think of myself as a, as a man of faith, but I have very, very high confidence that shared commitment to reasons fulcrum can can save us from the worst elements of human nature but we need everybody to pitch in and and help out i love that so much all right andy where can we find you if we wanted to follow you on social media and even websites yeah thank you um so uh recommend first that yeah. my book Mental my copy there, there <laughs> yeah so subtitle infectious ideas mind parasites and the search for a better way to think mm -hmm. it's available now wherever books are sold um you can learn more about the book on my website andynorman.org uh and uh, i also maintain a uh kind of a the story of 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 my efforts to share these ideas with the world on my facebook author page uh andy norman author gotcha so, you're on twitter too I, I dabble with Twitter, but I, I don't really understand Twitter. So. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, can you give us the Twitter? Because I still like your page. Uh, it's <laughs> at Dr. Andy No. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I, so because I, I see that your Twitter page is slowly getting followers. And I, I mean, I, I appreciate the stuff that you post on it. So. I, 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 and I'm grateful that you're nudging me that direction because I, I do need to become a more competent user of social media. And so far, yeah, I'm kind of. Especially Twitter, by the way. So for, especially for published authors, yeah, Twitter seems to be social media wise the number one source. Thank you, my friend. I'll see what I can do to get on that. All right, Andy, thank you so much for coming on. This was so awesome. This, this was great, Thank, and, and uh, you, you be well. I, I look for, hope we'll get a chance to talk again. We definitely will. I'll talk to you soon, Andy. Bye. <laughs>